Hello, everybody. It's Rob here from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, reminding you that if you like our show and think we deserve some financial support for what we do, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod to become a member. And if you don't want to, well, not a problem. Just ignore that strange feeling you have, that tingling on the back of your neck, that sinking feeling that someone is right behind you, watching, always watching. Anyway, hold fast and enjoy the show. You smell different when you sleep. Kyle, I know you're a marathon runner, and uh, I understand that a big part of marathon running is uh, putting Vaseline on your nipples to prevent chafing, but I gotta ask, did you have to do it before the podcast? Like, did you have to subject us to He's that? He's marathon prepping. I brought extra to put more on. I, 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 well, my other question is, did you have to look Keith straight in the eye? Did you have to apply it to me while maintaining hard <laughs> eye contact with Keith? And the answer to that question is yes. Tucking it and rocking back and forth is also part of it. Yeah. I mean, we, we accept certain things, and I, I think we rolled with it pretty well. The only Our only rule was not on the mic covers. And, are, you, uh, are you a Vaseline man, or are you a tape man? A Band-Aid man? Uh, body Glide. Body Glide. And I usually don't need it. Like, you, because he ran so many marathons, he sanded his nipples completely off. Ah, okay. Tiny titties. <laughs> I was going to say most... Most marathon runners aren't wearing latex either, but yeah. <laughs> just a full. <laughs> Kyle gets gassed on a third mile. He has to unzip the mouth. <laughs> oh, you're here to support. Oh, you're here to support your buddy. Yeah, who's he? The one in the full gimp suit. Yeah. Everybody's got supportive sides. We just say one that says, "Who untied you from the furnace?" Get it's the ball. Game. Really hard to chug Gatorade through a ball gag. <laughs> Oh, I've seen spout gags that would work just fine. Put out the fire. I... Does anybody else hear goodbye horses? What's going so, on? For those of us listening at home, because this is a an audio medium, I do take notes as we go. Yeah. I just wrote Gimp Suit Marathon. <laughs> and I just don't know what to do now. I don't know where to go with this. So I'm just I'm just gonna tell everybody. Welcome to Thieves, Ropes, and Renegades. I'm your host, Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I'm Kyle Graper. And I'm guest star Keith. Keith Volhop from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. Joining us once again. Um, man, I hope tonight's worth it because we all turned down our invitations to the Met Gala for this. So I uh, What am I gonna do with my tax the rich dress? <laughs> it was only worn once. <laughs> Keith had to I, I Keith already paid the deposit on his full Carl Lagerfeld costume. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do. What do you I, think Sam Smith's going to wear? Because he's got to be there, right? I, I mean, don't know, but I know that Fox News is going to be mad about it. It's <laughs> going to be dumb. They're going to have a point. <laughs> I. Well, it's, it's almost. As, it's going to be really weird. It's almost as if the Met Gala is a fucking travesty to begin with. It's the most vapid bullshit in the entire world. I, I mean. It's Coachella with less fun drugs. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it, any anything that's put together by that woman from Vogue magazine who looks like the fucking witch of Endor. Like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> she. I. I just. You just made an Ewoks spin-off. No, 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 no. It's a different thing. It's a different. Th- I'll explain after the show. But 
Uh, speaking of witches, though, we are kind of on that. I got us there. Well, I mean, we're definitely on yeah. witches. We're I, not I, kind of on it. We're definitely on witches. I got us there, I or guess. Or I read the wrong yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have done in the past. Which we have done in the past. But uh, today, we're exploring a very interesting story. A, a, a tragic story. A story that will enthrall you, amuse you, and fucking enrage you. Uh, because that's certainly what it did to all of us. It's the year 1612, and a woman is in a courtroom. She's accused of killing three men through witchcraft. She's presented with a confession to sign, which she denies. And then, a little girl is brought into the courtroom to testify against her. The girl bursts into tears as the woman screams at her desperately, and the woman is removed back to the dungeons. Once peace is restored and the girl has her audience, she jumps up onto a table and calmly denounces the woman as a witch. She's the woman's own daughter, and she's nine years old. She was a key witness in a trial that would lead to the execution of ten people, including all the other members of her own family. But 20 years later, that same little girl would find herself in the dock accused of the very same offense. In both of these trials, she would become a part of a much bigger story, one of justices, clerics, and physicians, even a king. Someone who would normally be buried under the debris of history has lived on because of her chilling role in one of the most disturbing and surreal witch trials on record, a story which would combine fear, politics, religion, science, and magic. A story of how powerful words, paranoia, social forces, and the simple day-to-day -day interactions of otherwise ordinary people can be. And more than anything, this story is emblematic of a transition between a pre-modern world and our supposed age of reason, and how we as people deal with a fear of evil that has never really gone away. Now, in today's tale, we'll explore the trials themselves, the people who played a major role in them, and just how the world of the time had primed the environment for just this sort of miscarriage of justice. All against a background that reminds you of the sort of reality TV show that you wish the major networks would have brought us. We'll also explore the role that these trials played in advancing the causes of science and justice that would help bring an eventual end to witch hunting in Britain, a change that would take some time to cross the Atlantic to make it here to America, as the famed Salem witch trials would so sadly illustrate. This is the remarkable story of the Pendle Witches. Now, before we get on with the story, we want to give honor to our sources, as we always do. So, our main primary source is The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster by Thomas Potts. And this is a first-hand account from the clerk of courts who served during the trials, which he himself wrote that was published less than a year after the trial's events. Now, I, I know that... Uh Language takes certain forms mm -hmm. as it evolves and grows, but boy, calling this one wonderful, like, boy, it means a different thing now, don't it? Sure does. Because this is very far from wonderful. Mm -hmm. We also have Demonology by King James I of England slash James VI of Scotland. Same guy. We'll explain how that happened. We also have, <laughs> it's a story. We also have The Lancashire Witches, a chronicle of sorcery and death on Pendle Hill by Philip Almond. We have The Lancashire Witch Conspiracy by John Clayton. We also have the book God and Monsters by Simon Armitage, who happens to be a former trial attorney himself, I believe, and he is the current poet laureate of the United Kingdom. So, I mean, the guy knows how to turn a phrase and how to use the written word. But he set the bar high. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> if he has any siblings, man, like, oh... Yeah. He better be really fucking good at something. <laughs> he's also from he's also literally from just down the road from where this whole thing occurred. Right. So he is from Lancashire. 
Gentlemen, any other sources to note? I got nothing. I watched I watched uh, Armitage's documentary on it, mm-hmm. which is absolutely and it's it's what maybe in I don't even know if it's ninety minutes. Uh, super, about an hour, yeah, super engaging, fantastic. It boils a lot of really really complicated, especially like courtroom processes. Yes, down to something very digestible, and mm-hmm. it somehow makes it more upsetting. Because just how plainly everything is spoken, it yeah. lets you know just how fucked up this shit is. Well, and also, I mean, the fact is, and I don't want to blow the lead too much here, but the trials took two days. Right. This was not a long, drawn-out affair. This was very, no, I mean, very like, fast. Because people, when they think of witch trials, they think of the Salem witch trials, which took a very long time. Mm-hmm. A very No, this was quick. This was, this, was a, this was a weekend. You know? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was they. They started on a Monday. They were done by Wednesday. <laughs> so, any other points of order before we begin, gentlemen? Yeah, I watched the documentary uh, "Witch Hunt: A Century of Murder" by Susanna Lipscomb. A fantastic documentary. Yeah, she's uh, an excellent historian and presenter. Yeah. Haven't we used Lipscomb as a source in something we did she's, before? Did she do the Justinian thing? Uh, yeah, she did a thing on Justinian. She's a she's. She specializes kind of in the late medieval, early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, she also hosts an excellent podcast uh, on um, the not. It's called Not Just the Tudors, and it's kind of on the the early modern period and in, in the kind of the entire world, uh, which is excellent. Highly recommend it. But she's definitely hosted documentaries that we've all watched to put together sources and information for episodes. And um, I don't know if we've ever used any of her books as direct sources, but it, it's. Let me put it this way. She's a prolific enough author that it's going to be a, ma- a matter of time. Right. But, uh, yeah, I highly recommend her work. I highly recommend the work of Dr. Uh, Ronald Hutton. Um, all, both excellent historians on the early modern period, especially in Britain. So, to put things very succinctly, life in Britain in 1612 pretty much colossally sucked everywhere all the time. There were the simple facts of life for the early 17th century. If you lived in the cities... There was some room for enterprise and advancement as the merchant class started to grow, but for those who lived in the countryside, you'd be forgiven for thinking that life hadn't changed all that well, since all that much since the heart of the Middle Ages. Across the seas, there may have been the exploration and settling of the Americas, but in the English countryside, landed nobles and gentry still owned pretty much all the land, and very few free farmers existed, most of them subject to the whims of blue-blooded landlords as peasants who had no say in how the land they worked was run, and the ruling class kept passing legislation on keeping wages low and rents high in order to line their own pockets. My, how far we've come. Oh, yeah. Now, gunpowder, the telescope, and the race-built galleon were signs of rapidly advancing technology, but the country peasant was using the same tools and techniques in the 17th century to work the land as they had in the 12th century. I don't know. Some were using gunpowder, too. (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that. I would dispute that whole claim, basically, because it's a question of resources. Yeah. Because that stuff wasn't cheap, and these people weren't rich, but I, I don't want to get bogged down. Uh, anyway. Fox had a decent amount of it, is all I'm saying. <clears throat> now, the great universities of Britain were pushing out graduates skilled in rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, accounting, and languages, but for the country peasant, you were unlikely to get any schooling whatsoever. Maybe a few years at the parish primary school if they had the room for you and you had the coin to scrape together, which was rare. Uh, instead, you would be going out as soon as you could walk to help your family work the fields and herds. Great leaps were being made in government administration, and England had the most comprehensive legal system in Europe. 
But if a peasant found themselves in front of the courts, they had practically no recourse for their own defense, unless you could afford a lawyer to defend you, which you couldn't, and would be subject to the court's penalties, which could range from harsh fines all the way up to the noose. And the list of hanging offenses seemed to grow by the year. England was really coming into her own as a military power, but that didn't stop rebellions and raids from happening, especially if you lived in the north, as dissatisfied Scottish lords would lead slash-and-burn attacks down into the northern counties to demonstrate their their uh, unhappiness with the status quo, with soldiers who wouldn't think twice about burning down your farm and robbing you of everything, or doing far worse. They were all, they were all the medical issues. Half of children didn't live to see their fifth birthday. The odds of dying in childbirth were shockingly high. There was little to no effective treatment for chronic conditions, infections, or genetic diseases. No one knew how communicable diseases worked, and if you did get in front of a doctor, they were just as likely to kill you with their treatments as whatever they were treating was to kill you. Now, work was hard, hours were long, poverty was endemic, there were practically zero social mobility, and you were at the mercy of nature, meaning famine due to crop failures and livestock die-offs was a pretty regular occurrence. Now, luckily, the English peasant had something to turn to for, the comfort, for comfort in the face of this futility and suffering. Their religion. Yay. Right? Nah. Sure nope. didn't. Nope. For starters, the Protestant Reformation and Henry VIII's creation of the Church of England in 1536 had meant that in the generation since, religious conflict had become a fact of life as well, as it had all over Europe thanks to the ongoing battle between the various Protestant sects and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. For eight decades, there have been ongoing anxiety about who practiced what faith, and when there was a changeover in monarch, what faith that monarch's successor was going to be, and it had led to quite a bit of persecution and violence that swung back and forth, both on a national and on a more local scale. Not only was there internal concern, but England's status as a breakaway from the Catholic Church left its people fearing invasion by Catholic powers like France and Spain, which, in fairness, the popes of the time were continually calling for. Now, depending on who was in charge, laws could be passed, prohibiting practitioners of a certain faith from holding public office, owning property, having access to public resources or rights of petition, or having the practicing of their faith outlawed altogether on pain of death or imprisonment. Often the powers that would be that be would carry out whatever pretty much what amounted to religious pogroms, attacking various faith communities and destroying their homes, businesses, and places of worship, and subjecting people to displacement, beatings, and other various tortures. Now there were public plenty of public executions on both sides. Oftentimes the opposing parties would go on each other on a much smaller scale as well, within individual communities the religious differences manifesting more like gang turf wars than anything else. But England wasn't just subject to the Catholic-Protestant contest because it also had the Puritans as part of the equation. The Puritans were an extension of the Protestant Reformation and emerged in the 16th century as a result of life in England under the Anglican Church. Basically, the Puritans took a look at religion in the 16th century, which by our modern standards, would be considered super dark and fucked up already, and went, there's too much fun happening here, and it's too light. They saw the Catholic Church as idolatrous and corrupt, too focused on saints and the status and wealth of the Church itself as an organization, and on that second part, they may have had a point. And they, were, and they saw the Protestant movements that had emerged, particularly the Church of England, as being pretty much the same thing. Just Catholic light, still focused on spectacle and wealth, but not beholden to the Vatican. Puritanism was centered on the decentralization of faith, arguing that the core of faith was a covenant between the individual and God, and that the minister's role was not to act as an intermediary between God and man, but to remind people regularly of their individual covenant and emphasize purity or of worship, 
No nice decorations in the church, no singing, no processions, or any of the things that actually would make church interesting. Now, the Puritan worldview was that if you weren't suffering, you weren't being holy. The sheer act of being content in life, or God forbid, enjoying yourself at all, was inherently sinful. And, and that's, uh, that simply through existing, you were deserving of damnation, and you better start acting like you're really sorry to God for having been created by him. And, and uh, by the way, you better also get working on making sure that everyone else is sorry, too. That one person everyone knows who seems like they're in an abusive relationship with the Almighty, who can't give themselves or anyone else any credit for their accomplishments or really enjoy anything without a sense of guilt, ratchet that up tenfold, and that's the Puritan community of 1612. Now, the advent of Puritanism not only served to create communities of some of the most joyless, self-righteous pains in the ass that you could think of, but also inserted a group of people who played both sides of the Catholic-Protestant fight and ratcheted up the violent rhetoric all the time, making the situation more potentially explosive and helping to increase the cultural belief that the devil was always waiting right behind the scenes to find his way into society to corrupt and destroy good Christians, who were still bad people and deserved it because they're all inherently sinful. Do you follow me? Yeah. <laughs> so... With life being terrible all the time and bad things constantly happening for reasons that people can't explain, naturally you start to want a scapegoat. When life is going along, you're being prayerful and living your life in accordance to the Bible and avoiding sin, and still your sheep start dying for a reason that you can't see, or your uncle is walking along one day and then just grabs his chest and falls over dead, you start to think that maybe something might be doing this to you through magical means, perhaps. Now let's keep, this, let's keep in mind, magic was nothing new to the people of the 17th century especially rural people. Folk magic had been part of their existences for millennia. Rituals and charms and spells that were meant to ward off evil spirits or bring good luck and fertility, or just because that little thing you do was what your parents did and their parents before them whenever you did a certain task. Tradition. The coming of Christianity didn't change any of this, and almost everyone practicing folk magic at this time were self-professed, believing Christians, and, the two, and these two things blended pretty seamlessly in what was just a fact of rural life. A fixture of these communities was that of the cunning woman. Now these women, generally older, served a variety of functions to their communities intended to use folk magic, divination, charms, and plant medicine to serve a variety of roles. They could be healers, midwives, abortion providers, community organizers, mediators, and just a general means of communion with the spirit world. If you needed help finding a lost item or wanting good fortune in your wife's pregnancy, you go to the cunning woman, who would conduct a ritual in order to help achieve this for half of what the local church would want for their prayers. And often, if you thought you were the victim of bewitchment or demonic assault, then it was the cunning woman you went to, who would cast spells and conduct rituals in order to defend you against such acts. The community didn't fear the magic of the cunning woman, they embraced it. As such, in the centuries leading up to the early modern period, folk magic and its practitioners were generally conveniently ignored by the church, but as the 17th century dawned, things had begun to change. It, it should also be noted that if on the subject of witches, it's a yin and a yang quality to a cunning woman and a witch. A cunning woman was not a witch. They were good. They would help you. Whereas a witch was bad. They would hurt you. They would steal from you. And within the community, you would understand this. Yeah. White if, magic versus black magic. Correct. If <clears throat> Now, if you are a religious zealot at this point, you're really not going to care about a distinction in these lines. Yeah, luckily there were no religious zealots around in England in 1612. No. And great episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it tonight, everybody. See a whole fa... Oh, wait, there's more. 
So it all began to shift with the release of a book in 1486. Goddamn tricky dick. Spurred on by the recent advent of the printing press, a book emerged into Europe written by two German priests, Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Sprenger, called the Malleus Maleficarum. Jakob, 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 Jakob. Also, rest in peace, Jerry Springer. I know it's it's just shortly after recording this, but come on, man. (laughs) So, it's called the Malleus Maleficarum. Or in English, The Hammer of Witches. Still the best title ever. It's such a good name. It's not fun, but the name's fun. Yeah, it's the only fun thing about it. (laughs) Although... If you find yourself with an old uh, an old copy that still has like the woodcuts of the time, it's pretty intense. It's pretty dope. Now, the Malleus was the first book to really lay out what we now know as the common early modern view of witchcraft. The witches and sorcerers had acquired their powers through the swearing of allegiance to Satan and communion with devils, and used these powers to harm others, and that witchcraft, through embracing the devil, was therefore heresy, a crime punishable by death. It also laid out the signs of this demonic covenant and how to find them and the means of torture that were best for extracting confessions from accused witches and how legal courts should conduct witch trials. The it, Malleus by... It should also be said that the, the Malleus itself was based on a papal bull. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're, they're using this to say that there's more behind this book than just two guys writing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a sign of the zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely. The Church of England still, they still have exorcisms. Mm-hmm. They still use the book. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't changed that much. Now, the Malleus by itself didn't carry a huge amount of impact and was at first actually denounced by the Catholic Church a few years after its publication for going a little bit too far. Right. <laughs> like, they, they kind of put out this bull, and then these two guys put out a book as a result, and they were like, Ugh, that's... Nah. Fan fiction. Yeah. We, we went too mainstream. Yeah. It's <laughs> so it but it, it slowly spread throughout Europe and started to reach a critical mass of popularity right at the same time as the religious anxieties around the Reformation and the Counter Reformation were reaching their height. And both sides of this conflict started to see the per, the prosecution of accused witches as a means of proving the purity of their faith. After about fifteen fifty Witch trials in Europe exploded, and oftentimes witch hunts would take on mass forms. In Bremen, in Germany, in 1561, a witch hunt claimed the lives of some 600 accused witches in the span of a year. In Torxeker, in Sweden, in 1602, a witch trial led to the execution of 71 accused witches in a single day. It's believed that between 1550 and 1650, Roughly 50,000 people in Europe met their end as the result of being found guilty of witchcraft. And that is not counting, taking into account people who suffered lesser penalties or people who were jailed and then found not guilty at trial. <clears throat> and it didn't take long for witchcraft to be officially enshrined as a crime. England's first witch law came about in 1542 when Henry VIII was still king, forbidding anyone to, quote, Use, devise, practice, or exercise, or cause to be devised, practiced, or exercised any invocations or conjurations of spirits, witchcrafts, enchantments, or sorceries to the intent to find money or treasure, or to waste, consume, or destroy any person or his body members, or to provoke any person to unlawful love, or for any other unlawful intent and purpose. End quote. 
Another act followed in 1562 under Queen Elizabeth I, which only made it a capital crime if the witchcraft caused bodily harm, with lesser punishments for other offenses. Now, Scotland followed a year later with the harshest law yet, which made the practicing of any witchcraft a capital crime, along with any association or consultation with those who practice witchcraft, which, combined with a particular witch-hunting zeal among the clergy of the newly formed Presbyterian Church, made Scotland quite the popular place for witch-hunts, as we'll now see. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth died without an heir, and so her name successor was the new King James I of England. Now, James also happened to be King James VI of Scotland, and he loved his Presbyterianism and hated witches. He'd had a fear of demons and witchcraft drilled into him as a boy thanks to his Presbyterian tutors, and they made absolutely certain that James feared that witches were out to get him. And James's paranoia was high, and for good reason. His father had been blown up by gunpowder and then strangled by political rivals when James was just a baby. And then his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had lost her head in an English prison in 1588. Hell, in 1605, less than two years after he became King of England, a fellow named Guy Fawkes and some of his buddies had tried to blow up King James and the English Parliament on the 5th of November. As they say, just because they're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. But James's paranoia also popped up in 1590 in a very different way. Now, we could do a whole episode just on this event, but to make a long story short, that year, outside North Berwick, which is in the southern part of Scotland, in what would be Scotland's first mass witch hunt, arrests started being made in connection to a supposed coven of witches that would meet outside the town to cast spells and commune with the devil. Now, it was one of those situations where the accused would name names to catch a break, and pretty soon, one of the names was that of the local bigwig, Francis Stewart, the fifth Earl of Bothwell, who happened to be one of James's political opponents. James had just traveled to Copenhagen to wed his bride, Anne of Denmark, but on the way back to Scotland, massive storms had necessitated that their ships turn around and take shelter in Norway for several weeks. And actually, the ship carrying all of Anne's wedding gifts sank in the North Sea. Now, James made the connection. Bothwell and his coven had created those storms through witchcraft in an effort to kill me. So, he immediately used his royal authority to insert himself into the witch trials as not only the main plaintiff, but as one of the, one of the primary investigators and judges. And over the next year, roughly 70 people would be put to death for their supposed involvement in a trial that stood out for, his, for its cruelty, as every accused witch was put to torture, whether they confessed or not, in an effort to gain more names, often with the king in the room while it was happening. It's believed that this big event, which made news all over Europe, was actually the inspiration for a small coven of Scottish witches in a little play called Macbeth by one William Shakespeare, with many of the lines of the Weird Sisters actually being direct quotes from the testimony of the accused that could be found in news pamphlets regarding the events. Thus, James's fascination and obsession with witches only grew, and by 1597, he'd found time to get some writing done. Now, James had read many skeptical publications that had come out after the North Berwick witch trials, and to push back, he published one of the most astounding works of writing ever by a head of state, a treatise that was essentially a sequel to the Mal Malleus Maleficarum. His book, Demonology, wasn't entirely about witch hunting, as there were large sections about necromancy, the history of black magic, and the anatomy of demons. And yes, sometimes that anatomy of demons. There's a whole chapter. Oh, there There's sure a whole is. chapter in demonology on demon dicks. He's uh, very generous. Yeah. <laughs> But a major part of the book is dedicated to the endorsement of witch hunting and the legalities, methods, and tactics that were best suited to their identification and prosecution to counteract the, quote, fearful abounding at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches, and enchanters. 
In fact, the release of the book itself in Scotland prompted another national-scale witch hunt that would lead to over 400 arrests and some 200 executions in the span of six months. And again, King James was insistent on taking a leading role in the investigations and the trials. But by the beginning of his tenure as King of England, James had helped to create an environment in Scotland of severe witch paranoia, and Scotland was far more involved in witch hunting than England ever was. Between 1560 and 1660, if you lived in Scotland on a per capita basis, you were 12 and a half times more likely to be executed for witchcraft than you were if you lived in England. But some of this paranoia and zeal is bound to bleed down south of the border, and it did. Now by 1612, thanks to all the religious and political tensions of the time, the fact that the king himself was an avid witch hunter, and the unhappy reality that everything sucked all the time, it was only a matter of time before another spasm of witch hunting took place, and indeed it would, this time in Lancashire. In North, Lancashire is located in England's northwest, about 60 miles south of the Scottish border, and in 1612, it was a particularly bad place in a particularly bad country in which to live. In a time and place where pretty much everyone was poor, Lancashire was noted as an especially economically distressed place. And the area that the rest of Britain, in the area that the rest of Britain looked at and went, yikes. Now, far from the control of London, it was seen as a dark corner of the land, with a reputation for disobedience, full of troublemakers and subversives, an area, quote, fabled for its theft, violence, and sexual laxity, where the church was barely honored, and what honor there was came with little understanding of its doctrines by the common people. Well, I mean, especially under James's time, they were very slow and resistant to give up Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And now it was also far from the main trade routes. The soil was rough and hard to grow things in. The weather was always foul. And it was one of the least developed areas in a nation that was still 90% rural by population. Basically, it's 17th century England's version of West Virginia. And I know the plenty. Of <laughs> and I, hey, I, I've I, never been more angry about a sentence. <laughs> I hate. I, I, I look. I know plenty of good, great people living good lives down in West by God. But even though you may think the reputation is unfair, you can't argue that the reputation exists. Now, I, if, I've seen Jesco White with my own two yeah. eyes. <laughs> now, if Lancashire was the colon of early modern England, then Pendle Hill was one of its polyps. It's in what feels like the middle of nowhere sticking up out of low rolling hills and rocky moors. And in 1612, the only town near it, Clitheroe, which is, I'm sorry, which is spelled Clit Hero. Let's go! <laughs> was home to a whopping five homes. So he's the most problematic Spider-Man character. <laughs> Stan Stanley was down bad. Yeah. Today, god damn it. Today it's Excelsior. still... Excelsior. <laughs> Today, it's still known for only two things. The witch trial that we're about to talk about, and as being the location of a religious vision held by a wandering preacher that led to the founding of the Quakers. Oh, no. Now, <laughs> I mean, the Quakers are all right. Eh, we're talking about the fucking Puritans, that's man. That's right. That's the, fair. Okay, serious question. What the fuck have the Quakers ever done yeah. to you? <laughs> it took me a long time to come around on oatmeal. Oh, come on. It's I, delicious. Hold on. It's I like a, it now. Mm. I'm trying to think, though. They weren't too far separated by years, the Quaker... No, they weren't. Yeah. No. Uh, 1642 was when yeah. the vision happened, so they weren't that far off. And Church of England was also still quite happy to shove them out and send them out to places like Pennsylvania. I mean, we're we're also a Quaker state. Yeah. I mean, like, it's... 
It makes it super fucking easy to get married legally. You can just be like, okay, and uh, now you are married oh, to true. her because he was here. Like, cool, done. Bing, bing, bing. Well, and in fairness, you know what phrase you never hear? Quaker witch hunter. So, all right. after the end of all this right. story, I think I think the Quakers might grow. I owe the more. Quakers an apology. Yes. And I'm sure they would happily accept it, Kyle. Yeah. Because you know what? That's just who they are. <laughs> Now, Pendle Hill... They're full of oats. And... <laughs> How can you be mad if you just have, like, uh, uh, unlimited oats? I just... But here's the thing is, I've, I've seen Kyle flexing in the mirror. I'm not sure he's going to be able to make the apologies. He's just going to be too busy staring at his own reflection in the big buckle on the hat. <laughs> now, Pendle Hill itself was home to two families. Both poor, both big, and both absolutely weird as fuck and known throughout the area for being so. Now, if we're going to compare Lancashire to West Virginia, then these two families can definitely be compared to the weird and wonderful whites. Now, both families made their living in similar ways. The matriarchs were both cunning women, both women old and infirm and in their 80s, but still active in the use of folk magic and medicine to serve the local community. Now, their family members generally found money or food through begging or doing odd jobs around the community, but neither family was above a bit of theft or the occasional bit of sex work, and both clans had a reputation for being troublemakers, albeit ones who were tolerated by the community for the services their matriarchs could render. However, their roles and their close proximity to each other meant that both families were constantly in competition for cunning woman work and the best begging grounds. So not only did the families have a reputation for being households full of internal chaos, they often found themselves in conflict with each other in a sort of low-stakes Hatfield and McCoy situation. Now, the first of these families was led by Elizabeth Southerns, known locally as Old Demdike. Now, Demdike lived with her widowed daughter, Elizabeth Devis, and her children at an old stone house called Malkin Tower, which is not nearly as impressive as the name suggests. Uh, the name means shit. Well, there's Quite, a couple different yeah. names. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, names. It's a yeah. regional dialect for shit. Now, yeah. yeah, because I very much... It was or slut tower or slut tower, <laughs> yeah. Which I, it wasn't the word, so it would have been something like slatter, slatter, yeah. Which yeah. is just now we just say, but slatter. but to to use the term Malkin to describe a slut. People in the north of England were doing that well into the 20th century. Oh yeah. So uh, some of them actually probably will still use that term today. But yeah, Malkin and then uh, Muckin, which also, which is the colloquial local term for shit. Um. Nice place, I guess. Um, I am Score Tower. Yeah. (laughs) I thought Chris was going to be the one to make that joke. Hello, Mike's here. Yeah. Gotta let him eat. So, What are you using your Saturday for? I've got a headache, so I'm going to go up to Shit Tower and get some remedy. (laughs) For a quick remedy and perhaps some some sex work. (laughs) Some light sex work. Old Demdike's there. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you gotta eat. Here's the thing. Of all the things they get up to. Do you? I'm talking about them. Damn it. Anyway. Not so, if I'm paying. I'll tell, you that. I'll tell you that right now. I will admit I walked into that one. I walked into that one. But here's the thing. Yeah, they call it Malkin Tower. I very much doubt that there was anything approximating an actual tower. And the other family lived further down the valley, led by Ann Whittle, a.k.a. Old Chaddix who lived with pretty much her entire extended family, the Red Ferns as well. Now, both families, when you think about it, fit right into the usual list of targets when it comes to allegations of witchcraft. They were led by two old women, that's one right there, who practiced folk magic, that's two, contained many widowed women of various generations, that's three, lived somewhat separate from the community, didn't attend church as often as they were supposed to, 
engaged in sex work, and were generally seen as either burdens to the community or just general troublemakers, obnoxious, or just strongly opinionated. I was going to say, you just described a madam. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. They were traditional targets for witchcraft accusations. Mm -hmm. Yep. And these were the sorts of people who, across generations in geography, would end up being the usual targets of witch hunts, and this case was no exception. Now, on the 21st of March, 1612, old Demdike's granddaughter, Allison Devis, was walking down a lane through the nearby trodden forest when she encountered a traveling peddler, a middle-aged man named John Law. She begged him for some pins, but Law wasn't feeling charitable and refused to open his pack, walking on down the lane. Now, Allison didn't take this well, and she shouted a curse at the man, something she probably did with fair regularity to people who turned her down, and this was normally brushed off. But Law was an exceptionally pious man, although not enough to be charitable, and Allison saw him stumble and fall, his face a rictus of fear. Now, following his collapse, Devis ran up to him and found that, according to the trial transcripts, quote, his head was drawn awry, his eyes and face deformed, his speech not well to be understood, his arms lame, especially the left side, end quote. Now, modern hindsight leaves us with very little doubt that Law had suffered a stroke, likely brought on by his pious anxiety over the words in Allison's curse. To be fair, if I walked past the sidewalk and a guy who bumped into me and I said, get fucked, and he immediately had a stroke, I'd feel a little bad about that, too. Or start imagining you had powers. Or would you feel awesome? Um, the way <laughs> Do I use this for good or evil? It should also be noted that, that pins were used in magic. Yes. In, at least at the time. Like pins, and also, they weren't cheap. No, they're quite no. expensive. So they had to be handmade. She, yeah. yeah, so it's likely that she asked him for free pins. Well, not just magical ritual, but a, a lot of casual yeah, just, medical procedures mm-hmm, like right. the lancing and, of boils and the yeah. treatment of warts and the kind of things that cunning women would do. And love magic. And love magic. <laughs> Love Magic, the new album from Chris Miller. <laughs> Let's go. I'm gonna dust off the old the old rock band set and just, just practice my <laughs> And now my cover of Goodbye Horses. You know why. Oh no. <laughs> now, what the fuck was the name of my band in rock band? Oh, oh, oh hang on. My solo act was the Mansplosion Steam Hammer. <laughs> but as a band, we were uh, <laughs> we were the sex generals. But the S's were dollar signs. <laughs> that's right. We were the sex generals. I, I think we might about, have found oh, the name of the episode. It's not connected love to magic the subject matter. by the sex generals. I'm writing sex generals now, just so I don't forget again. Yeah. Boy, that takes me back, man. I wonder if my Xbox works. Anyway. Man, so John Law's We're going family. out of retirement like Motley fucking crew. Let's go. I'm, I'm fat and can't sing anymore. It worked for Vince Neil. So John Law's family was summoned and he was carried to a local inn where he actually began to slowly recover and Allison rushed to his bedside to beg forgiveness, convinced that she had actually caused his condition and had managed to actively bewitch the man. Now she was in no doubt that she had nearly killed him and it was her own fear and contrition that would start to spiral things out of control. The peddler John Law's sons, Abraham and Marmaduke, Jesus Christ, (laughs) outraged at the events of the 21st of March, reported the incident to an ambitious local magistrate, a royal appointment from the South, a man named Roger Noel. A devout and zealous Puritan in an area that was still very much controlled by the Church of England, but still rife with Catholics and their popery, and this is a term that will keep coming up, Noel saw his path to success laid out by going after nonconformists, which in his eyes could be Catholics, witches, or any sort of person who didn't toe the line. Now, Noel began to investigate and interviewed Allison Devis, who needed to unburden her soul, 
confessed to everything, including having active and ongoing commune with the devil. Now, but beyond that, Allison also told Noel that there were other witches active in the community. Old Shaddix, Ann Whittle, and her entire family were all practicing witches and had been responsible for the deaths of four people in recent years that had all met ends that, although likely just diseases that couldn't be seen, were at least mysterious at the time, and that they cast spells and made clay figurines. Ooh. Now, Noel went to interview Chaddix and her family, and they hit right back at Allison Devis and the rest of the Demdike clan, stating that they too were all practicing witches and had also killed multiple people. <clears throat> now, Elizabeth Devis hit back again, claiming that old Chaddix had an arrangement with her late husband, John, whereupon John would provide Chaddix with eight pounds of oatmeal every year in return for protection from her spellcasting. But in 1601, when he was late in following through on oatmeal delivery, he mysteriously dropped dead. Back and forth, the accusations went, and soon eight bodies were attributed to murder by witchcraft from both families. Now, Noel, coming to the realization that he wasn't investigating a single incident, but now conducting a major witch hunt, rooting the devil out of Pendle in his eyes, on the 2nd of April, he grabbed some con local constables and men-at-arms and arrested Allison Devis, Old Demdike, Old Chaddix, and Chaddix's daughter, Anne Redfern and all were taken 30 miles away to the dungeons at Lancaster Castle to await trial. However, word soon reached Noel, although the source of the intelligence is unknown, that on the 10th of April, Good Friday, a meeting had been called at Malkin Tower, although perhaps it could have just been a party. Allison's younger brother, James, had stolen a sheep to feed everyone, and the members of the two clans, Demdike and Shaddix, along with some others, came together, according to Noel, for the purposes of planning to spring their family from Lancaster Castle and killing the jailers. Although, whether this is through magical means or more conventional methods, Noel makes no mention. It is it is worth mentioning that on the 10th of April, 1612, it was Good Friday. Mm -hmm. And them being absent from Mass already is setting off a lot of, a lot of yeah. you know, red flags here. Just sort of one of those... It, 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 here's how I can see this possibly panning out, is that they're not showing up to Mass where it gets around... Noel hears about it, goes, why weren't they in Mass on Good Friday? They were like, oh, they were having a get-together at Malkin Tower. Yeah, somebody's like, where the fuck is my sheep? Yeah, they, were, <laughs> they, they slaughtered a sheep at yeah. Malkin Tower together. You know, all the, the, the two witch clans. I'm sure like, I mean, under, under English come law. To, come to shit tower for some mutton and some good times. <laughs> for some mutton and sex it's work. Just associating with a witch. <laughs> There's oh, God. So oh. Well... I mean, Just associating with witch with a capital crime. Yeah. Yep. So whether they were actually conspiring to commit witchcraft or just hung out with witches is kind of irrelevant at this yeah. point. Now, but not to mention the fact, like you said, it's Good Friday. Not only are they at church, but they're at home having a party, which means like, yay, Christ is dead. Yeah, right. It's not... It's not <laughs> Not the Kill best the look. Christ. It, like it doesn't. Christ. It does not look good. I mean, meat on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> they're literally murdering a lamb at a party <laughs> in a brothel <laughs> on Good Friday. I mean, it sounds like Wild my kind of good time. Is happening. <laughs> it sounds like my kind of good time. Right. But yeah, they are. But then we would immediately be crushed to death. <laughs> It's by just, just a guy laying yeah. stones on us until we collapse. It is one of those things that's like a picture that just keeps getting worse the longer you look at it. Right. Right. So, 
However, attendance at this event, whatever its purpose, it was enough justification in Noel's eyes to declare those there a part of the same witch coven that, uh, that those already arrested were a part of. And on the 27th of April, 1612, eight further people were arrested and taken to the Lancaster Dungeons and charged with Maleficium, or evil spellcasting. Demdike's daughter, Allison Devis, her son, James Devis, and locals Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, his mother, Jane Bullcock, let's go, Alice Gray, and Janet Preston. I knew that these names were going to make you guys laugh like 12-year-olds. Now, their trial... You said Nutter and Bullcock, and you thought you could just get through that without us <laughs> giggling like idiots? Come I knew on, I, I, I knew what was coming. We've done like 75 of these episodes. <laughs> I knew what I knew what was coming. Like 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 a farmer so after... So did Jane Bullcock. Like a farmer after... <laughs> like a farmer after too much moonshine, I could see the Bullcock coming a mile away. <laughs> so, God, I, I'm just going to get out of this half of the episode. Their trial... <laughs> was to be set for the Assizes of August 1612, regular sessions in which trials would be held in rapid succession. And it seemed that yet another witch trial was going to take place at a time when they were becoming all too common. But this trial would stand out because of who the star witness would be, and that's what we'll talk about after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. The trials of the Pendle Witches began officially on the 27th of July, 1612. The people arrested in Pendle were not the only accused witches on trial. In addition to the members of the Demdike and Chattox clans and their associates, there were also three women known as the Samlesbury Witches, Jane Southworth, Janet Briarly, and Ellen Briarly, who had been arrested in May on charges unrelated to those of the Malkin Tower Coven, of child murder and cannibalism. There was also Margaret Jesus. Pearson. Yeah. Well, there was also Margaret Pearson, the so-called Padaham witch, who was undergoing her third trial on charges of witchcraft, and this time was accused of having a toad as a familiar and causing the death of a horse through Maleficium, which happened to be her own horse. I know, I was confused too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I have three cats. I would not have made it very long back then. <laughs> now the first what care care to elaborate because that just sounds awful you just, it seems like you had a pet it was your familiar and then mm. they hung you oh you mean they looked at you as, a, as the, the the old cat lady you actually are and yeah especially because one of my they, cats is man size okay that's fair <laughs> long cat now the first member of the Demdike Chattox coven to face trial was associate was associate Janet Preston and her trial took place a month earlier and in a different court at the York Assizes because she lived in the village of Gisburn, which is now in Lancashire, but in 1612 was part of the county of Yorkshire. This was actually Preston's second time under charges of witchcraft, as the previous year she had been arrested for the supposed murder of a child by Maleficium, but was acquitted and released before her trial even took place after the only witness recanted their initial testimony. However, this time she found herself on trial for the murder through, mal through malefic means, 
of a local landowner named Thomas Lister of Wesby Hall. And though she pled not guilty, three people gave evidence against her, all attesting to the fact that when she was brought before Lister's body and made to touch it, when she did so, quote, the corpse member bled fresh blood presently, in the presence of all those that were present. When uh, you say corpse member... Uh, they just mean the corpse's body. It's the it's the yeah. whole thing. The dead body. <laughs> not a not a just, uh. <laughs> Yeah. Now the bleeding go, go touch the corpse. Anywhere's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and also the the corpse member bled fresh blood presently in the presence of all those that were present. That is the flower of early seventeenth century mm. English writing right there. Now the bleeding of a corpse when touched by the witch who had supposedly killed it was seen as a sure sign of guilt in both the Malleus Maleficarum and King James's demonology. And said the poor guy just wasn't dead. <laughs> the guy just goes, ow! <laughs> She's a witch! Stop poking me! Now, after the murder, she had apparently attended the Malkin Tower gathering in order to seek help from the rest of the coven in concealing her role. Poor Janet Preston's trial took less than 90 minutes, and she was found guilty of murder by witchcraft. Two days later... She was taken to the gallows at York and hanged on the 29th of July, 1612. Now, the next victim of the trials... Whatever never... happened to the toad? No word. <laughs> uh, was that, that toad was... Um, it was dissected. Was, yeah. They dissected it as a matter of court. And she was super mad that they killed her toad. <laughs> so they went, oh, see, she's pissed about the toad. She's a witch. <laughs> oh, Okay, like you just killed her pet. You just cut open her pet in front of her, and she was pissed off. And <laughs> because everybody's going, nobody would rightly get this upset about a dead toad. Which I'm going to be honest, they kind of have a point. It was her pet, but it was her pet. I used to have lizards. I liked them a lot. Right? Man, I really would have gotten burned as a witch. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's favorite lizard, the toad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get it. I know. I get... I'm just busting balls yeah. here. So. <laughs> Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. <laughs> Kill me! <laughs> Just Ratty and Badger screaming and vomiting in a corner as they watch what's happening to their buddy. Now the next victim of... God Christ. Now the next victim of the... Tri- God damn it, I fucked myself up. Let's go. <laughs> the next victim of the trials would never actually make it to trial. Elizabeth Southerns Old Demdike, the octogenarian matriarch and cunning woman, died of a fever caught due to the wretched conditions of the Lancaster Castle dungeons in the first week of August, two weeks before their trial date. None of this is surprising because the witch defendants, 20 of them in total, were housed in the dungeon in a cell measuring only 20 by 12 feet. The castle's very alive website was very whoops about this whole situation. Yeah. The, the castle was a prison until 12 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, and still contains active courtrooms. It's still a courthouse. It's still a courthouse. Day. Now, finally, though, on the 18th of August, 1612, at the next Lancaster Assizes, all of the remaining defendants were brought before the bar, accused in the murder of some eight separate individuals over the span of six years, one attempted murder through means of witchcraft, that of the peddler that Allison Devis allegedly cursed, and everyone was also slapped with the charge of plotting to murder others through means of witchcraft. Allegedly, their plot against the jailers at Lancaster Castle. Now, all were capital offenses. 
All of the remaining accused would stand trial during the few days of these assizes, and the prosecutor was none other than the zealous Puritan Roger Noel, the man who had all of the accused arrested, and he had something special waiting up his sleeve. Two judges and a jury, the clerk, the prosecutor, and the witnesses, and the defendants would all have been present in the courtroom in their designated places, ready for a trial that was far from a foregone conclusion, as far less than half of witch trials at the time ended up in a conviction, and far less than that actually ended up in an execution. The first to be called to the bar was Allison Devis. Now, Allison had already confessed to Roger Knoll of her guilt in the cursing of the peddler John Law, and when given the opportunity in court to recant that confession, she refused, demonstrating a severe sense of guilt and contrition, and Thomas Potts is sympathetic in his chronicle of the trial. Her trial took a matter of only 20 minutes, and concluded by the judges asking her, if her powers could be used to restore the health of the peddler, that if she could do so, the court might be able to show mercy. But she sadly stated that she couldn't, that the only one who could was her grandmother, all Demdike, two weeks dead of jail fever. Now, despite her confessing and her contrition, she was found guilty of the crime of attempted murder through maleficium. The next to take the bar was her mother, Elizabeth Devis, who had pled not guilty and strenuously denied the charges, and Potts is far less complimentary about her, stating, quote, This odious witch was branded with preposterous with a preposterous mark in nature, which was her left eye standing lower than the other, the one looking down, the other looking up, so strangely deformed that those that were present did affirm that they had not often seen the like. That's that's a bit much. Like, she's on trial for her life and you're going into roast mode. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, she was a weird-looking lady. But despite Elizabeth's combative spirit and denial, Roger Knoll was about to play his trump card. Now, it wasn't often in the early 17th century that witnesses would actually testify in the courtroom itself, usually with prosecutors reading statements given in interviews or interrogations. But in this trial, there would be no witnesses for the defense and one for the prosecution. But what a star witness it would be. After the arrests, Noel had taken her into his household to provide for her and to coach her on how to best deliver the testimony that would make his big break trial a success. And she was led into the courtroom, a tiny, slight, shaking figure. It was Elizabeth's own daughter and Allison's half-sister, nine-year-old Janet Devis. Now, Elizabeth was distraught and screamed at her youngest child, born to her out of wedlock from an unknown father, pleading with her to show sense and deny what the prosecution was accusing her of. Janet burst into tears, she was still only a little girl after all, and turned to the judge and asked that her mother be taken away before she could speak. Once Elizabeth had been silenced and Janet had her audience, she jumped up onto the prosecutor's table and calmly denounced her own mother as a witch with these words, quote, My mother is a witch, and that I know to be true. I have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog, which she called Ball. The dog did ask what she would have him do, and she answered that she would have him help her kill John Robinson of Barley, James Robinson of the Sam, and Henry Bitten of Rowley. Now, going on to describe the Good Friday meeting at Malkin Tower, she said, At twelve of the clock, about twenty people came to our house. My mother told me that they were all witches. She described the food they ate, and named all of the defendants who were on trial as being present. Now, Thomas Potts wrote the following about her testimony, quote, Janet Devis, daughter of Elizabeth Devis, confessed that her mother was a witch because she had seen her spirit in her mother's house, which is called Malkin Tower. The spirit was in the form of a brown dog that she called Ball, 
And at one time, the said spirit asked her mother what she would wish him do, and she answered that she would have him kill John Robinson of Barley. The spirit told her mother that the said Robinson had been killed by witchcraft accordingly, and her mother has continued as a witch over the next four years. She further confessed about a year after Robinson's death, her mother called for the spirit ball again, who appeared asking her what she wished to be done. Her mother asked that the spirit kill James Robinson of Barley, brother to John, and Ball agreed to it, and about three weeks later, James died. She also confessed that she was present at one time when her mother called for Ball. Ball asked what she would have done, and her mother asked, and her mother said she wanted to have him kill a person called Mitten of Rowley. So Ball said that he would do it, and some three weeks later, the person, Mitten, died. Janet Devis further stated that on Good Friday last year, there were about 20 persons, two of them being men, at Malkin Tower at about 12 of the clock. Her mother had said that all of these persons present were witches, and they had come to give a name to Alison Devis's own spirit, she now being a prisoner in Lancaster Castle. She identified the names of six of the witches present at this meeting. The wife of Hugh Hargreaves, Christopher Howgate, her uncle, and Elizabeth, his wife. The wife of Richard Miles, Christopher Kay and his wife. The names of the rest being not certain to her. Her mother and brother were both there. End quote. Now, Janet's older half-brother James was then brought in and gave similar testimony, adding that his mother had robbed several graves in the yard of the new church in Pendle to provide human remains for rituals and spells, and Allison Devis was brought back in to give similar testimony against her mother. Now, both had apparently been offered the possibility of clemency in return for their giving of testimony to the court. But Janice immediately turned on her older half-siblings, accusing them of also taking part in the witchcraft rituals and the grave robbing that her mother had used to murder the men using her spirit. After the testimony given by Janet and her siblings, the judge asked the jury to come to a decision on Elizabeth and James, and the verdicts were returned. Guilty. Potts was very impressed with the young testimony young Janet gave, writing that, quote, Although she were but very young, yet it was wonderful to the court with what modesty, Government and understanding, she delivered this evidence against the prisoners at the bar, being her own natural mother and brother. The results were the same as for poor Allison. James and Elizabeth Devis, both guilty of the crime of causing harm through maleficium. Now, we'll never know why Janet Devis said what she said, whether she was an abused child taking revenge on a family she felt didn't care for her, or whether she had been coached well enough by Roger Knoll that she actually believed the allegations, Maybe it was just the pressure of the atmosphere of the courtroom where she simply didn't know the stakes of her own testimony. But standing on the table, center stage, in the middle of this moral, political, and legal trauma, she was playing a pivotal role in an, in an event emblematic of its time. But it wasn't just her own family that Janet was prepared to denounce through testimony. Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John and Jane Bullcock, stop it, all of them were more well-to-do and had denied all charges. So the judges demanded a higher burden of evidence. They arranged identity parades with the accused mixed in, with other prisoners from the castle and members of the castle staff, but without fail, one by one, little Janet correctly picked them out, stating that they had been present at the Good Friday get-together. In an effort to possibly catch Janet out, one of the judges asked her, Did you see Joanna Stiles? A made-up name, and actually not a bad move by the judge here, frankly. But, Janice, but Janet excuse me, stated that she'd never heard of such a person. One by one, the rest of the defendants were brought before the bar, and Janet gave detailed, calm testimony as to their presence at the meeting of the Malkin Tower Coven. Her only slip-up was that in the testimony she gave against the presence of Alice Gray, and she stumbled and got mixed up during the questions posed by the judges, 
and although she stayed insistent about Gray's presence, it was enough to inject reasonable doubt into the judges and jury. Over the next day, the testimony of a nine-year-old girl systemically resulted in the verdict of guilt for all the parties involved, with the exception of Alice Gray, who was found guilty of a lesser charge of committing witchcraft without the intent to harm, giving her a year-long jail sentence that was later commuted. <clears throat> no one who was at the bar was allowed to call witnesses or give testimony in their own defense, and none of the defendants had any legal representation present. Well, that's in demonology. Mm -hmm. It's written that you're allowed to, you're allowed to fly, you can bend the rules a little bit when in matters of witchcraft, well, normally, which makes yeah. that even more fucked up. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, generally, a nine-year-old would not have been allowed to testify in right. British no. proceedings at the time period. No, no because they, not couldn't, at all. they couldn't swear. It, it's what it was. I believe fourteen. 14. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you wouldn't you wouldn't use the unless it was strictly for a witchcraft trial. Mm -hmm. Then the child's testimony was accepted. Yeah. I do have an important question, though. Hearing all this stuff about Ball killing people. How many people has Vinny killed, Chris? Kyle, I don't know you well enough to answer that question. It's fair. Especially not with the, the rise of religious zealotry in this country. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> so, the lack of rep legal representation and the fact that they weren't even allowed to speak up in their own defense gives lie to the words of one of the judges, the Right Honorable Sir Edward Bromley, who was chosen to be the one to pronounce sentence for all the defendants after the verdicts had been rendered. He stated, quote, There is no man alive more unwilling to pronounce this woeful and heavy judgment against you than myself. And if it were at all possible, I would to God this cup might pass from me. But since it is otherwise provided, and after all proceedings of the law, there must be judgment, and the execution of that judgment must succeed and follow in due time. I pray to have patience to receive that which the law doth lay upon you. You of all people have the least cause to complain, since in the trial of your lives there has been great care and pains taken and much time spent, and very few or none of you but stand now convicted upon your own voluntary confessions and examinations. Few witness against you, but such as were present and party at your assemblies. Nay, I may further affirm what persons of your nature and condition were ever arraigned and tried with more solemnity, had more liberty given to plead or answer to every particular point of evidence against you. He continued, As you stand simply, your offenses and bloody practices not considered, your fall would rather move compassion than exasperate any man. For whom would not ruin of so many poor creatures at one time as in appearance simple and of little understanding? But the blood of those innocent children and others of His Majesty's subjects who cruelly and barbarously you have murdered have cried out unto the Lord God against you and solicited for satisfaction and revenge. It is therefore now time no longer willfully to strive both against the providence of God and the justice of the land. The more you labor to acquit yourselves, the more evident and apparent you make your offenses to the world. It only remains I pronounce the judgment of the court against you by the king's authority which is. You shall all go hence from the castle from whence you came, from there you shall be carried to the place of execution for this county, where your bodies shall be hanged until you are dead, and God have mercy on your souls. For your comfort in this world, I shall commend a learned and worthy preacher to instruct you and to prepare you for another world. All I can do for you is to pray for your repentance in this world, the satisfaction of many, and forgiveness in the next world, for saving your souls, and God grant you make good use of your time you have in this world to his glory 
and your own comfort. There would be little time for glory and comfort, as the day after the conclusion of the trials, Thursday, August 20th, 1612, after only two days of proceedings resulting in nine death sentences, the nine defendants who had all been found guilty were taken from the castle dungeon to the very subtly named Gallows Hill in Lancaster. Now, whether they had confessed or not didn't matter, as all were about to suffer the same fate. Clad in filthy rags, with their hands bound and cloth gags in their mouths until they reached the place of execution, so as not to be able to cast curses upon those <clears throat> who had sentenced them or carrying the sentence out. This execution would have been public, with townspeople and farmers and tradesmen from the surrounding area having come from miles around with the promise of gruesome entertainment, with vendors selling apples, meat pies, and small religious trinkets and commemorative tokens proving that event merch is nothing new. Those sent to pray over the condemned would take communion and then deliver a sermon on the dangers of the devil and witchcraft, urging the present crowd to take caution and be alert for signs of maleficium and possession. Three at a time, the condemned would be taken down from the wagons and dragged to the gallows. The condemned who hadn't confessed would be given the final opportunity to do so and to die with their souls unburdened. And those who had confessed would have this noted to the crowd by the present clergy. Then, they would be stood atop a ladder on the wooden platform and have the nooses placed around their necks. There were no hoods, as hoods for the condemned were a kindness that would only be granted by the British legal system in the next century. And the clergy wanted people to see these foul witches suffer. Then, the ladder would simply be pulled away. There was no long drop and the breaking of necks and a quick death. This was slow and graphic. The eyes would bulge out, tongues lolling from mouths and gasps and gurgles, audible as the audience went silent. Bodily waste would be released as the systems of the condemned went into panic mode. It could take several minutes, often as many as 15 or 20, 20 minutes. for some to die. For others, it took even longer. Allison and James Devis, both still teenagers, and Ann Whittle, old Chaddix, were all small to begin with and were so thin due to malnutrition from their time in jail, that their own body weight was not sufficient to suffocate them against the ropes, and the executioners were forced to pull down on their legs for extended periods of time in order to assist gravity in its work. Once dead, the bodies were removed, new nooses put up for the next batch, and the recently deceased tied up on the limbs of nearby trees to serve as a reminder of the fate of those who consorted with the devil, and the process would begin all over again. After it was all over, nine people had been killed for a crime that was in reality impossible to commit. But one that both church and state still saw as a threat. The indignities didn't end there. Even after the crowd dispersed, their bloodlust sated, the bodies would be left up for the rest of the day and would often be stripped of what rags they wore or have hair, finger and toenails, or even teeth and digits removed as souvenirs and good luck charms. Often the waste fluids of a witch would be squeezed from the clothing into a cup and drunk, as this was seen as a surefire means of protecting oneself from harm through witchcraft. Now once, only once night had fallen would family, friends, or good Samaritans be able to go up and cut down the bodies to be buried. And of course the idea of a religious funeral and burial on consecrated ground was out of the question. There is no record to indicate whether or not Janet Devis was present to witness of the, the deaths of the family members whom she had condemned with her testimony. But it's entirely likely that the magistrates and clergy would have required her attendance. Her witnessing of her family's death 
proving reinforcement of a valuable lesson on virtue and godliness. Of the rest of the accused, the three known as the Soundlessberry Witches were acquitted of their charges of child murder and cannibalism after the testimony of the only witness in the prosecution of the, uh, for the prosecution in their trial, a 14-year-old girl named Grace Sourbutts. No. There's your, there's your <laughs> no. cleanser. God, God, there's no. your cleanser. It? Absolutely not. There's a reason I included her name. It's, it's the cleanser from all the dark stuff. But yes, after uh, the witness for the prosecution, Grace Sourbutts was thrown out by the judge who discovered that the last person who had advised her on her story was a Catholic priest. And therefore, her story had been tainted by popery and as such could hold no weight in a Church of England courtroom. The so-called Padaham witch, Margaret Pearson, was found guilty on both her charges of having a familiar and killing her own horse with witchcraft, but these were not considered to be capital crimes under the law codes, and thus she was sentenced to a year in prison, which was later commuted to a whipping and being pilloried on four successive market days. But the face of the accused witches of the Pendle Trial in 1612 isn't the end of the story of witchcraft in Lancashire. Lancashire and Yorkshire would actually be home to an ongoing series of witch trials over the next two decades and change, well over a hundred separate instances of trials being held for witchcraft-based offenses, but for the most part, the conviction rate in these cases seemed remarkably low, around 5%. But the final case, taking place in 1634, stands out. In this case, in a near repeat of the 1612 case, 20 accused witches were taken to the dock at Lancaster Assizes on the 24th of March, 1634, to stand trial for the murder of Elizabeth Nutter, the sister-in-law of 1612 trial victim Alice Nutter, <laughs> proving that it's a small town. Mm. The chief witness for, this pro for the prosecution in this case was a 10-year-old boy, Edmund Robinson, whose testimony led to the finding of 19 of the defendants guilty of capital crimes of murder through maleficium. The judges, however, didn't feel good about this income or this outcome, and so refused to officially pass a sentence and instead referred the case to King Charles I of England himself, who brought Edmund Robinson to London to cross-examine the boy in his own chambers, under which the boy admitted that he had fabricated his evidence, and the 19 were all granted pardons. However, the English legal system at the time charged defendants for the costs of their jailing while awaiting trial, and even if you were granted a pardon, you couldn't be let out of jail until you paid what was owed. Now, given that Janet Devis had no family, because she'd all helped send them, she'd helped send them all to their deaths through her testimony in the 1612 trial, she languished in jail as the result of the testimony of a child in a witch trial, because sometimes what goes around absolutely fucking comes around. Now, records of the dungeon at Lancaster Castle note that in August of 1636, she was still being held two and a half years after the trial, but records for the following month do not include her name among those held, indicating that she likely died of some god-awful 17th century jail disease. Now, the results of the 1634 trial that we just talked about are not just an interesting piece of trivia because of the fact that the main witness for the prosecution in the first trial ended up being tried for witchcraft herself. Instead, the facts in the, that the case... <clears throat> instead, the fact that the case was appealed and examined and the verdicts overturned, at least partially, points towards the fact that witch trials were starting to be seen, in England at least, as not necessarily in line with what the intelligentsia and leadership at the time wanted the, just, the English justice system to be associated with. 
Now, in 1625, the King of England, an avid witch hunter, James I, died and was succeeded by his son, Charles I, who didn't share his late dad's obsession with all matters demonological. Instead, he had his hands full with disputes with his parliament and continued conflicts with France, but in addition, he and his court, and by transference the popular zeitgeist of the time, became obsessed with the idea of modernity and intellectual advancement. This was a part of a wider movement at the time that would give us the eventual birth of the Enlightenment, and in the following years would produce figures like Descartes, Newton, and John Locke, and focused on areas like the proving of hypotheses through observation and the idea of courts dealing more in temporal and less in religious matters. Now, both of these movements were at odds with the idea of the courts punishing people accused of being in service to Satan and his legions and committing acts of witchcraft that could be backed up by nothing more than anecdotal evidence. Plus, advances in medicine and science were starting to show the wider world that it was the frailty of the human body that could bring on paroxysms and that crops and livestock died from regular old diseases that people had little control over. It was right around this time that they figured out how blood moved around your body, and it was in England. Mm -hmm. This is It's the rise of forensics. Yeah, about the same time that you get the uh, invention of the uh, microscope by Anton von Leeuwenhoek. Mm -hmm. Right around the same time. <clears throat> Between 1635 and 1645, there were only 11 trials for witchcraft in England, with a total of 18 defendants, only four of whom were found guilty, and all of their sentences were overturned by higher courts. However, as a result of Janet Devis's testimony being so crucial to the case, the English law courts, which had banned the testimony of anyone under the age of 14, as you mentioned, as they were considered too young to be able to have they, could, they couldn't swear they couldn't, they couldn't, swear they couldn't be sworn yeah. in that was the that was yeah. the caveat the pendle witch trial caused a change in legislation that allowed children to be sworn in to give court oh. testimony although this was very slow to be adopted countrywide and the only practical application of the testimony of children was as you said keith in witch trials mm -hmm. the next time the the next time a child did this was in salem yeah the, the that is fucking they, insane. <laughs> they used this case. They cited the, the case. Yeah, right. they cited the case here for mm -hmm. the Salem witch trials. And when the years of the English Civil Wars, there was something of a resurgence of, of witchcraft trials in Great Britain. Now, war always brings out the worst in people and their spirituality. And from 1642 to 1651, the years of the wars, the mass suffering that they inflicted on society brought about an increase in the blaming of witchcraft for misfortune. And as royal authority broke down across the country, any progress made on the witch trials front in the last few decades was often swiftly reversed. While the numbers of witch trials weren't huge, they were definitely much bigger than they'd been in the previous couple of decades, to the point where the office of a national witch hunter in charge was created. The man's name was Matthew Hopkins, a Puritan minister who became known as the Witch Finder General. Woo! Although both his job and his title were something he himself created. I mean, he self-made witch finder general. He would search for news of people being accused of witchcraft and then travel to where the trial was being held and offer his services to the courts, which were essentially to torture the people accused and examine their bodies for the marks of communing with the devil, none of which I'm sure he found sexually exciting whatsoever, and then charging the courts a hefty fee for his services. Everything you need to know about this dude is whenever he found a... A mark of the devil. Yeah, the witch's teat. Yeah, if it was uh, <clears throat> if it was on anybody's genitals, they described it as their secrets. Yep. 
that's all you need to know about what was going on in this guy's head. Just that he hard as a diamond while he he's He couldn't that. stop taking a look at everybody's fucking undercarriage. Yeah. If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. <laughs> he Part but, of his entourage was a witch shaver. Because this, part, part if of you the do idea, what you love, <laughs> this he, general he, way more intense than the insurance one. He <laughs> he brought somebody along with him. He paid a man whose only job was to travel with him from witch trial to witch trial to witch trial to shave the pubes of accused witches so that he could find the teat with which they suckled their familiar. If he would have only been alive in the 1990s. <laughs> So many less people would have died. Uh, well, he'd be out of a job. Yeah, I was going to say, he's back on the, the street. The 1990s? Uh, yeah, last 10 years, he, you know, some things have made a comeback. He'd be back in work again. Anyway. Well, somebody has to make it that yeah. way. <laughs> he just would have gotten into doing Brazilians. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's believed that Hopkins, in addition to being the source for a great Vincent Price movie and an awesome doom metal band... Yeah was responsible for the deaths of about 100 accused witches between 1644 and 1647. Now, while this number may not seem huge in the grand scheme of European witch trials, keep in mind that the records indicate that maybe 50 accused witches were executed in England between 1600 and 1644. Now, in the period after the execution of Charles I, and of Oliver Cromwell's protectorate running the show for 11 years as essentially a Puritan theocracy, you would think that witch trials would continue to spike. But this actually wasn't really the case. Many of the regime's legal minds have been part of the movement to start sending witch trials the way of the dodo before the Civil War broke out, and they were happy to continue to suppress witch trials. And the holding of witch hunts was at odds with the image that Cromwell and the Puritans were trying to put out, which was that rule under their faith-based state had brought about a country that was so godly that nobody would even think of trying to enter a demonic pact in return for magical powers. Basically, it was the witchcraft? What witchcraft? There's no witchcraft here. It was like how um, uh, Duterte said there were no gay people in the Philippines. Right. Oh, yeah. It's the same principle, essentially. Well, there were no homeless in Beijing before the Olympics. Yeah. Now, in Scotland, in 1649, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, which made the Puritans look like easygoing suburban youth bastards by comparison, passed a series of laws to enforce godliness, which made capital crimes of blasphemy, the worship of anything deemed to be false gods, and the beating and cursing of one's parents and that these laws contain text reinforcing the existing 1563 Witchcraft Act, and stating that anyone could be put to death not only not uh, just for being found guilty of witchcraft, but merely for being accused of it. If somebody accused you of witchcraft, the state could kill you without a trial. That was the law. That is the most Presbyterian shit I've ever heard. <laughs> now, there was a spate of Scottish witch trials in the 1650s, which took the lives of many victims, but in 1661 and 1662... Some 664 accused witches were tried and executed for witchcraft. That is a big jump in the numbers. However, the scale of these trials and executions also caught the attention of the newly restored English monarchy, and they clamped down on the Scottish trials. And between efforts to tamp down witch trials and an eventual growth in popular skepticism, even in Scotland, witch trials became a rare event. And the last person to be executed for witchcraft, the first in over a decade, in the United Kingdom, was hanged in 1727, and even her guilty verdict was eventually overturned by royal courts, too late though it may have been. And all of the court officers who took part, the judge included, were removed from their positions as a result. Hmm. 
Now, the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which overturned all previous acts in both England and Scotland, was of a very different nature. It stated that the crime was not religious in nature, nor was it the, in the act of witchcraft itself, as in the eyes of the law, witchcraft wasn't real anymore. With the following words, quote, No prosecution, suit, or proceeding shall be commenced or carried out against any person or persons for witchcraft, sorcery, for enchantment or conjuration, or for, the, or for charging any of them with such an offense in any court whatsoever in Great Britain. The Be- six actual witches were like, fuck yeah, now's yeah. my time. Basically, it didn't, outlaw, <laughs> Let's go. it didn't outlaw witchcraft. It outlawed witch trials. Instead, it basically took the form so of... So it guaranteed freedom to practice witchery. Yeah. Let's go. Basically, it took the form of a consumer protection law. And any person who claimed to have the powers of witchcraft could be tried as a con artist. <laughs> and as subject, if found guilty, to, uh, to fines. Now, this would eventually be overturned itself by the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951, which pretty much does what, it's, what it says on the label. <clears throat> However, one place where it took a lot longer for witch fever to go away was right here in America. While Puritanism was on the wane in England after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, the American colonies, especially those in New England, were seen as a haven for Puritans, and many of the colonies were run as small theocratic states where non-Puritans had few rights. By the 1690s, this led to an environment where everything still sucked all the time, and the community was nothing but self-righteous pains in the ass who all hated each other. And when you combine that with the Puritan idea that Satan is waiting right over your shoulder to drag you into his clutches all the time, it's no surprise that not only did witch hunts find a surprising resurgence in places like Salem, they did so in a way that seemed to reject all of the legal evolution that had taken place in English courts regarding witch trials in the previous 80 years. Now, for example, the Salem Witch Trials, which people forget, saw the imprisonment of over 150 people on witchcraft charges, heavily featured testimony from children, and spectral evidence, which had been outlawed in English courts. The idea that a witness testifying that they could see the spirits of witches committing deeds or assaulting people, a purely anecdotal type of testimony, which had been considered inadmissible in English courts, was central to the efforts of the prosecution. Now, witch trials continued to take place in the American colonies well into the early 1700s in places like Connecticut and Virginia, although not nearly on the scale of Salem, and a consolidation of royal authority eventually caused these to die out almost entirely, with only occasional witch trials taking place, such as a trial that took place in New York in 1790 and one in Delaware in 1798. And the last trial involving witchcraft as a harmful act in the United States was in... Gentlemen? Pennsylvania. Well, what year? Uh, in what year? Uh, 1971. I was going to say, I have it up. When a teacher who had been accused of teaching witchcraft to students in Flowing Wells, Arizona, was tried on charges of child endangerment and was found guilty, though the state Supreme Court soon overturned the charge. Now, luckily, witch trials are a thing of the past here now, having been replaced by things that are totally different and totally don't have the same kind of language and jailing of people on spurious charges like the Satanic Panic and QAnon. We're doing great, guys. Yep. <clears throat> All I'm saying is people who caught charges in the 1990s for crimes that never happened are still in jail. Yeah. Now, yeah. Luckily, in addition to all the legal changes that have occurred since 1612, the witch trials have become something of an economic boon to Lancashire, featuring heavily in their tourism and heritage industries. And in towns close to and in towns close to Pendle like Lancaster, Burnley, and Clitheroe, 
You can find touring companies with bus tours to all of the places featured in the trials, local breweries making witch-themed beer, and esoterica shops selling magic and mystery openly in a reclaiming of the local witchy heritage. Now, the recent coming of the 400th anniversary of the trial brought about a significant boost in scholarship about the events, but the Pendle trial has for centuries played a role in the creation of literature and media, from Neil Gaiman pulling on facts from the case in Good Omens, to novels and poetry about the events themselves, to TV specials and artistic tributes to the victims of the trials. Writer Catherine Spooner, in a 2012 article about the trial victims, argued that they have been turned into folk heroes of a sort. That, quote, their history has become a model of resistance for the disenchanted and the disenfranchised. Now, this may be true, but we must also remember that the victims of these trials can serve as warnings against the belief of accusations without evidence, of the need for science and justice to balance the forces of paranoia and intolerance, and of the need for reason to win out above all when so many seem to be acting against it. Then maybe this, as we face a world in which so many seem to want to return us to the things that made 1612 such an awful time, that proves to be the greatest legacy of the Pendle Witches. Janet Preston, Allison Devis, Elizabeth Devis, James Devis, Anne Whittle, Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, Jane Bullcock, Elizabeth Southerns, and Janet Devis. May they, and all the other victims of witch trials everywhere, rest in peace. That's the end of the story, fellas. Where's everybody at with their uh, pizza shop basement search? Are you all up the, up the task? On I've moved on to witchcraft now, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've I've seen Chris. His Witchfinder general outfit's actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. He's got a big, big cape, big cape, big hat with a buckle on it. <laughs> Sequins on the T-shirt that say "Bitchfinder General." <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> it's about to be hot boy summer. Let's fucking go. <laughs> Short shorts, Crocs, <laughs> and socks. Well, I, don't Crocs want, I don't want the Crocs to smell weird, Keith. Those Crocs <laughs> just have like. Early modern Christian iconography on them, it's dope. Oh God, like little wooden stakes and garlic, just in case I run across a vampire while I'm there. You could put them in ye old sport mode. Yes. <laughs> you guys can go fuck yourselves. I love my Crocs. I just bought two more pairs because they're on sale on Amazon. Uh. Crocs, if you're listening. <laughs> Sorry about the bitch finder general thing, but ah, uh, Crocs, the fat man's shoe. I love them, man. I fucking love Crocs. I've just given up. <laughs> so that's perfect for me. I have a fun fact. Everybody, it's, it's a quick aside. We can thank Mike Judge for this. Uh, in the movie Idiocracy, <laughs> and I'm not lying about this. This is this is a real thing. They needed a shoe that was not readily identifiable. They needed they needed everybody to be wearing something that just let them know that society has completely failed. Mm. The movie's almost twenty years. So they old, found so. they found a company yeah. that. Uh, was relatively unknown and uh, approached them for shoes for this particular film. And I guess one of the concerns was like, what if this, like, what if this company like blows up? Like, what if they make it big? Like, well, then fuck, then it's, we were in the ground floor and they can thank us for it. But everybody went, it, they're not going to take off. It's not going to be a thing. These shoes look hideous. Nobody's going to buy these. They were Crocs. Yeah. If you go back and watch the movie, they're all wearing Crocs. <laughs> yep. Uh, when did that movie come out? Oh, five? 2004, 2005. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 
the withering husks that we have become. I fucking love my. I have Crocs with headlights. <laughs> my cousin bought me truck nuts for my Crocs. <laughs> I love my Crocs, baby. I fucking love my Crocs. I'm gonna put you on trial for witchcraft. <laughs> Just so, just so I can get gonna, you to stop talking about Crocs. shoes have no laces. <laughs> I'm going to walk in and be like, no one wearing Crocs could be an evil man. How do they stay on his feet? It is through the powers of Maleficium. I'll just get a little kid to say I'm fine. It'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Kids love Crocs now. Fuck you guys. Oh, I see it. A specter's keeping his shoes on. <laughs> Uh, well, they're trying to put Chris on trial. People are walking out looking for a nine-year-old who's willing to testify against him. <laughs> Children love Crocs. <laughs> I'm just saying. They'll all say it. There's a dark, dark depth to that statement. But... <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what a story, man. It's Yeah. It it's, is. And there's so much we couldn't get to about witch trials and witchcraft that just... Well, because it's all the same thing over and over again, <laughs> isn't it? It kind of is, but you do it's start a lot seeing of evolution. Grinding. And, it's well, yeah. and the most important evolution because even in Salem, it plays out the same way. Oh, everybody, yeah. Oh, yeah. everybody has a score to settle, mm-hmm. so now they're out of the picture, or they're trying to save their own ass once they get right. accused. Yep. Yeah. That's how these things often tend to go because they're they're going to end pretty much one yeah. way, and you can tell that there is a a sharp decline in witch trials with the advent of forensics. Yeah, and there's. That's not a coincidence. It's not. And it's that is a truly horrifying part of human society. Yeah. Is that witch witch trials existed still, for a long time. That witch witch hunts and witch trials still do exist in the modern say, world. Yeah, right. In certain parts, Play, of, the world, in certain parts of Africa and, mm-hmm. and New Guinea and And they're the same fucking thing. There was a witch hunt that happened in Russia in twenty twenty one. Nine people got lynched for being witches. In Europe. Right. Well, in Asia, if it's in Russia. Well, no, this was uh, this was in the western part of Russia. Oh, God. Yeah. So, it's still happening to a certain extent. And it seems like there's an awful lot of people who are trying to bring this shit back. Well, and I mean, like, you can you can look at these things now and think, like, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Like, how could this have possibly... But you mentioned the satanic panic. But what was like the... Like, the, 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 the toilet shoots to yeah. subterranean oh, sex yeah, dungeons? Oh, like, grandma's house and all that, yeah. you know, McMartin preschool case. It's just as crazy. But there is a through line there, because so much of witch trials was people would accuse you of witches and go, prove you're not, which is something you can't do. What was the attitude with so many of these cases during the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s? Prove you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. What's the whole thing with looking at 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 you know liberal politicians and going you're a you're a child murdering pedophile, pedophile feeding on yeah. you know feeding on their oxygenated adrenaline? Well, with that, it's, it's prove you're not anti-Semitism. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> well, yeah. well, that's yeah. that's just blood libel. <laughs> there, I mean, there is that, but it's it's the, still the same thing. It's prove you're not, mm-hmm. and that's the through line. Yeah, the, it's the Monty Python sketch just lays it out perfectly. Yeah. Like, you know, well, we burn witches, and that's because they're made of wood. And <laughs> More witches! <laughs> Turn me into a newt. Actually, I got ve- that up. <laughs> actually, very, very few witch trials ended in burnings. Right. Not many. Uh, like, Well, like, the the Witches of Ludon case ended in a burning. Yeah. But that was actually specifically because the guy was a priest. <laughs> yeah. Who was supposedly the head he of the coven. He was just... Too horny for his own good. Uh, watch Ken Russell's The Witches. What a it's film. And I, and I think the first witch trials in Scotland ended in burning 
but they there were two burnings and sixty eight hangings. But I thought the ones yeah. that were burned, they actually choked them first. Yeah, they did strangle them before they burned them. Yeah, or in a couple cases, they would put a pack of gunpowder around their necks, which would ignite and go bang. And yep. Yeah. I mean, if those are my three options, I'm taking the neck gunpowder. Yeah, I mean, it takes a while for the flames to get up there, though. No. Oh, oh I'd, they I'd rather with just that. okay. Yeah, I see. right. Less, so less. But yeah, it's, it's it's a remarkable case. It's an absolute tragedy. It's a travesty, but it's so interesting because this case is a microcosm of so many of the social forces happening at that time. Yeah, and I think one thing that... I don't know if you touched on it or not, uh, but Knowles was rather new at his position. Yeah. And he's in the middle of nowhere, and he's just like, oh, yeah, I got something going here. He, he His arrest started in... March of 1612, he took the position in December of 1611. Yeah. He was brand spanking new. Well, but he was, I mean, yeah. the king had very enthusiastically signed off on witch hunts, and well, he saw this as an opportunity to... Interest, another interesting link to King James. The guy who got Knowles the job as the magistrate was the guy who had discovered the gunpowder plot. Oh. Which created a little bit of a myth about the trial, because there was a a line of thinking that emerged after the end of the trial that the meeting at uh, Malkin Tower to was for was to bust the people who were in Lancashire Castle out by blowing up the, the castle with gunpowder, which you brought up, which you alluded to earlier in the episode. Please. Right, we were talking about, you know, <clears throat> the advent of gunpowder and, you know, peasants didn't have it. Well, they got it and they got a lot of it. Yeah. And they decided <laughs> they were going to use it. I, we talked about Alice Nutter at length. She didn't testify in her trial. All she said was, I'm not guilty. It wouldn't say anything else because she was Catholic. Yeah. And she knew if she opened her mouth, it was going to be bad for her, and it was going to be worse for the other Catholics because there were going to be that, that cell that they were in was about to get a lot more crowded. Yep. There was a thought that she was leaving a Catholic gathering when she or, was Or going to being, a Catholic yeah. gathering. And you had also mentioned uh, about posthumous acquittals. Mm hmm. Neither of these people have been acquitted. No, and, and people have mm-hmm. been lobbying uh, Parliament yeah. to to do so for a very, very long time, and, and it was denied like just four or five years ago. Not just four or five years ago. There was a petition that was denied last month. Last month. Is it because they confessed? Like, is that the difference? Uh, uh, or is it uh, just- well, part of it, but actually, this one was rejected by the justice minister, saying we just have too much else on our plate. We can't worry about it right now. That is a point. Yeah. Which I understand. It does seem like something you can do pretty readily. Yeah. All you have to do is get a public servant to write up a document, man. Right. And just have the justice minister sign it, and that's that's Mm -hmm. it. But, I mean, all these family names are still in the area, too. Right. Yeah. The the one documentary I watched, they interviewed one of the Nutter families. Yeah. The Nutters, the Devises, the Redferns, the Whittles, they're all still in the area. I've seen quite a few documentaries about the Nutters. Nutter versus Bullcock, the Kyle Graper story. <laughs> Those are training films. I, oh, yeah. So the... God damn it. Okay, I don't want to get bogged down on this. Chris, where can people find us out there? If you want to find us, search trrpod at gmail.com and fire us off an email uh, if you have any questions regarding nutters or bullcocks and what have you. Uh, you can follow us on Kyle's Twitter. Kyle's relationship to both. Finally got our uh, our Twitter unlocked again. Uh, at podcast trr, so that's a thing now. <laughs> 
Uh, follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. Find us on Facebook by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And join us in Valhalla by going to www.patreon.com slash TRRPod. To help us, to help fund our research that helps you find names like uh, Nutter and Bullcock and, oh, what was the last one? Hold on. Or even if you just want to buy us a blue check mark oh, on sour Twitter. Butts. <laughs> oh, yeah, Sour Butts. <laughs> I just, yeah, this is... This is the stuff our Patreon supporters are paying for. We're doing the legwork here so that you don't have <laughs> yeah. to. Uh, and also, um, yeah, go on YouTube and follow Thrifty Whiskey. You just hit Thank a milestone. You. How many yeah. you got now? Uh, I haven't looked at the numbers, but we are monetized. How many How many subscribers you got to get for that bad boy? Let's find out. Let's find uh, we right had now. to get 1,000 subscribers and I believe 4,000 watch hours per Holy month, shit, Keith. Guys, per month or something like that on a rolling busy. year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could get there. We'd be immediately demonetized. I'm <laughs> <laughs> talking about bullcocks and nutters too much. Um, but so, you have, uh, you have uh, 1,300 subscribers, Keith. Congratulations, yeah, man. That's really cool. Check out, uh, check out Keith's channel, everybody. I'm going to need like two weeks before I can look at whiskey again. That's fair. That's fair. I can smell the cirrhosis. And Kyle's a coward. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, oh, ooh, I have gout. <laughs> Shut up, Kyle. <laughs> Shut up and run a marathon, you coward. <laughs> it is It is kind of nice, though, that with the rest of us sitting here, it's the marathon runner who feels the worst right now. Uh, don't try to keep up with surgeons at a wedding. Well, I just, I just can't feel anything anymore. I'm yeah. just like parts of me just stop working. We're just numb. Parts are falling off. Man, things are falling off of me like a like an old rag doll. Um, I told a doctor the other day it's because I got that dog in me, and he told me never to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was really funny. He did not think it was funny even a little bit. So, so now I have to go back. We're, we're going to wrap it up here and leave you with the thought of how how Chris was going to Chris is going to live forever because he's got that dog in him. Got it. I'm built different. <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm gonna we're going to wrap it up here. And and you know usually I ask you to hold fast or suggest that you hold fast, but today I'm going to make you hold fast with the powers of witchcraft. Oogie boogie 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 oogie boogie boogie boogie. Burn him one more time. Bullcock. Bye.